From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On the show today, we hear about a new project from the Red Cross to install free smoke alarms and other fire safety tips in Louisiana cities. And we hear about a new EPA-funded air monitoring program coming to Mississippi's Cherokee community. But first... This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Bogalusa Heart Study. Started in 1973, this study looks at the impact of vascular and metabolic changes on health throughout the lifespan. And it's one of the longest ongoing health studies of a biracial, semi-rural southern community. For more on this study and what researchers have discovered over the last half century, we're joined by the director of the Tulane Center for Lifespan Epidemiology Research, Dr. Lydia Bazzano. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, back in 1973, when Dr. Gerald S. first began this study, what exactly was he looking for? Can you just tell us about this project in its early years? Sure. So the study was in its planning phases in 1972, which included all the piloting and the recruitment and physical exam procedures, just like you would have in a doctor's office. So drawing blood to test for cholesterol, measuring height and weight and blood pressure. And once they worked the kinks out of the piloting phase, Dr. Berenson and the study staff started obtaining permission from parents to examine the children in the Bogalusa school system. And those were kids who were in kindergarten through their senior year in high school. So the age range was four to 18. And that examination began in September of 1973. A trailer would be parked next to the school and the children whose parents had given them permission would be brought to the trailer for a blood draw and a physical exam. And then that study was renewed and continued doing examinations among children. And as the first participants got older, the study began to look at what happened after high school and later in life. But Dr. Berenson's passion was the heart health of kids. And so that was where he was looking to leave a legacy. What have been some of the main findings from this study, especially when it comes to looking at the environmental risk factors in developing certain diseases? Yeah, so I think we have to think of the environment, you know, very broadly, including the socioeconomic environment, geographic location, et cetera. And um, Dr. Berenson and the study really did a tremendous job in looking at all of these things. It's truly a landmark study in the history of medicine and our understanding of heart disease. Early on, Dr. Berenson was able to convince the families of children and young people who had died accidentally to undergo an autopsy. And those autopsies provided proof that heart disease started in childhood and young adulthood. So during this time of unimaginable grief, the families of those kids really left a legacy that changed how we think about heart disease today. And this study was also one of the first to look at racial health disparities in heart disease risk factors. So back then, Dr. Berenson used the term divergence because the term health disparities wasn't around until the 1990s. Um, It's also one of a very small number of studies that provided evidence to support the pediatric blood pressure guidelines. And we still have a lot more work to do in that area. So the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which creates guidelines for the medical community, 
still rates the evidence as insufficient to know whether or not high blood pressure in children contributes to heart disease later in life. And so we were recently just able to publish our findings in the New England Journal of Medicine from 50 years of tracking blood pressure and other heart disease risk factors in children. I mean, 50 years is a really long time. And because Dr. Berenson was looking at how childhood antecedents could contribute to adult cardiovascular problems, he and other researchers had to work with patients from childhood into adulthood. How common is that for patients to be involved in a study for so long? What's the benefit of that when it comes to this kind of research? Sure. Well, it's extremely uncommon to have people be part of a study for 50 years. Most research studies go on for a few years and then they'll end. But this study stretching from childhood now into midlife is one of a very few rare and unique studies that are called life course studies or lifespan studies because of how long they've been tracking the health of their participants. And as far as the benefits, so thinking about the benefits to our participants, they undergo a free exam that has comprehensive blood work, including a blood count and chemistries, an ultrasound of their hearts and the major blood vessels in the neck that bring blood to the brain. And with this latest round of examinations, they're also eligible for a brain MRI and PET scans. So this kind of exam will cost thousands of dollars if it were billed for medical purposes. And we have quite a few participants who've discovered through the examination that they might have cancer early enough to have it surgically removed or that they might have another health issue early enough to treat it before it got really bad. And if we discover something abnormal during the exam, we'll go ahead and provide those results to the patient's doctor or um, help connect them with the doctor through the local hospital in Bogalusa if they don't have one already. We are speaking with Dr. Lydia Bizzano, director of the Tulane Center for Lifespan Epidemiology Research. We mentioned earlier that this study was one of the first biracial and semi-rural studies of its kind. So what kind of findings is this study able to provide that past studies, ones that were perhaps more racially segregated or more urban, couldn't provide. How do these qualifiers make the Bogalusa Heart Study so different? Now, this study is really unique because the decision was made to enroll both Black and white boys and girls. This was one of the first studies of its kind that could investigate and identify what we now call health disparities. And being in a rural location is also different from most other studies of heart disease. And that allows us to investigate not only biological and physical aspects of heart disease, but also what kinds of socioeconomic and geographic things help to uh, determine or um, prevent heart disease in the future. And speaking of these socioeconomic evaluations, I know that the Bogalusa Heart Study has resulted in over 160 sub-studies. So can you tell us a little bit about those sub-studies? What have they found? The autopsy study that I mentioned was one of the early sub-studies. And others have included tracing family trees to investigate whether genes are involved in heart disease, dietary studies to look at what people are eating and even what children are eating and how that influences their heart health. And they did one of the early type A personality studies to examine whether specific personality traits are involved in heart disease. Um, There have been studies on secondhand smoke 
and more recently studies that look at the sons and the daughters of our original participants to see how a mother's heart health can influence birth outcomes and child development. These are fascinating. Well, thank God I'm a type B personality. You joined the Vogelusa Heart Study Program in 2010. What have your main projects been while working on this? And as a Louisianan yourself, what does it mean to be involved in a study with such a tremendous reach and really profound history? Yeah, these studies, um, in particular the ones I've been working on in Bogalusa, link heart health to aging in general and how to do so in a really healthy way so we avoid Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and keep our independence. This is called successful aging. And in particular, I and other investigators in the heart study team are interested in successful brain aging right now. Uh, It's been a tremendous honor to be part of this study. And as a Louisianian, I want other people to know this incredible health legacy that the people of Bogalusa have contributed to the nation and really beyond that to the world. I don't think it's appreciated enough or really uh, known. This has been Dr. Lydia Bazzano, director of the Tulane Center for Lifespan Epidemiology Research. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And before we go, we would like to mention that this story idea came to us through our pitch line. You can find our pitch line at the bottom of each Louisiana Considered web post on our websites, WWNO and WRKF.org. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. This month, the Red Cross will be working to install 50,000 free smoke alarms in at-risk neighborhoods in 50 signature cities. In Louisiana, volunteers will go to Baton Rouge on January 21st and to Kenner on January 28th. For more, WWNO's Carl Langle spoke with Ed Bush, executive director of the Capital West Chapter in the Louisiana region for the American Red Cross. Ed, tell us a little bit about the Home Fire campaign. Uh, specifically, kind of what's the mission here? How widespread does this mission go? Yeah, let me let me take you back a few years. So, so right around 2014, uh, the Red Cross launched its Home Fire campaign and. We, we, we became aware of the fact that while, while hurricanes and floods and tornadoes become the big disasters and are the big response mechanisms for the Red Cross, really the disaster that is the, the hardest for us to, to try to keep up with are our home fires. Um, here in Louisiana, there, there is a, a home fire every night, if not more than one. And nationwide, that's, that's pretty, pretty typical. It is, uh, it is the largest disaster that hits us 12 months a year. So the Red Cross said, well, let's, let's, let's bring that in. And they launched a home fire campaign to do really two things. You know, one, try to prevent some home fires through education. But first and foremost, and in, in, in very, very close and very in keeping with the Red Cross mission was, let's do our best to keep you safe. If, in fact, your family has a home fire, let's, let's provide you with some hardware and, and a smoke alarm in your home. That'll, that'll keep you safe, and, and, and we'll start with that. And this is this is done by feet on the ground, because according to the campaign, volunteers are coming out and installing free smoke alarms in at-risk neighborhoods. And tell us a little bit, what does 
What makes exactly a neighborhood more of a fire risk than maybe something a few blocks down? This is probably the, the one aspect of the Red Cross that I was most surprised at when, when joining the organization in, in 2020. I, I had no idea the frequency of, of fires. Um, and, and when you plot those fires on a map, and, and the fire department tracks all this data by, by address and by location, where, where do we have fires? Um, you begin to see what, what we call hotspots, places where, oh, there's an inordinate amount of fires here. And then if you do a little bit of a closer look, um, it, is, it is overwhelmingly in those vulnerable, at-risk, lower-income communities where they, they don't have the good fire protection equipment that, that, that other more well-off affluent neighborhoods maybe do. Um, you've got your, your mobile home communities, you've got your very large apartment complexes. All of these tend to be hit a little harder um, by home fires. So, so yeah, by, by partnering up with the fire department and starting to take a closer look at some historical data, we begin to become very aware of, of those at-risk neighborhoods. And, uh, and that's where we, we kind of point to and shine a light on and, and we work with the local officials um, and the local fire departments, and, and we, yeah, we pulled together this team uh, of partners to put on this event uh, in, in one of those at-risk neighborhoods. Of course, smoke alarms will let you know when there is a fire, but there are some ways to kind of keep the smoke alarm from going off, um, some ways to prevent fires from happening in the first place. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's a really important piece of it, because that's kind of the twofold thing that, that we try to do when we're having a sound alarm event. Part one is, yeah, let's let's get at least one good working smoke alarm in there and let's make sure you know how to change the batteries and and how to test it. Um, and, and we usually try to put two in every residence. But the other piece that we do is an education piece. And while one person is inside putting up some smoke alarms, typically the other Red Cross teammate is, is walking the homeowners or those people that live there through some education materials that we leave with them. Um, not the least of which is, yeah, let's look at what you're doing in the kitchen. Let's look at what you're doing to stay warm. Uh, and then really the other biggie is, is we talk to that family and we say, do you have a plan when it's two o'clock in the morning and your smoke alarm is going off and the house is full of smoke? What, what is your plan? And, and overwhelmingly people, they don't have a plan. Um, so we give them a little, you know, in, the, in that little bag of, of goodies that we leave with them. One of them is a dry erase board uh, with a little dry erase marker. And we encourage them to sort of sketch their house and, and label a few things, not the least of which is here's where we're going to meet Here's how we're going to get there. And then maybe a little bit of some instructions that can be as simple as, look, everyone stay in room. Mom or dad is going to come get you. We will take you to the front yard. Or, or everyone come to the living room and we're all going to go out together. Um, in absence of that, what happens is, is some child is hiding in their closet because they're scared. Someone goes to get the dog. Someone runs into the backyard. Now dad goes into the house to go look for a, a kid who's in the backyard. All of that is, is increasing the likelihood and the risk that someone's going to get hurt. So, so yeah, we just, we just tell the family, how about you guys just talk about what's our plan? We're speaking with Ed Bush, Executive Director of Capital West Chapter of the Louisiana Region for the American Red Cross. And in addition to installing free smoke alarms in homes, the Red Cross is also providing fire safety tips. Are there any other tips that uh, you haven't mentioned already in dealing with fires? 
So in, in addition to, to some tips, we can provide some really easy to perform and easy to learn training. Um, first aid, uh, CPR. I, I think CPR is a really good example. Uh, I, think, I think CPR suddenly became a very, good, a very big topic of conversation based on a football game that a lot of us saw. And, and, and we got a crash course on the value of knowing CPR um, and how helpful that is if someone is right there who knows how to do that. So yeah, in addition to some, some tips on how to stay safe, we can also pretty easily give you some skills uh, to go along with those tips. I love the fact that um, staying alive has become kind of an anthem for CPR to a degree because it keeps that tempo that you're looking for, that life tempo. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thinking of dance music as we as we work on fire control and saving lives here. For anyone who is interested in being a recipient of a free smoke alarm, what do they do now? Yeah, we make it we make it real easy. Uh, really, all you got to do is, is is using your phone, your tablet, or your computer, or whatnot. Go go to our website www.redcross.org.org, and, and and you you can sort of click on some tabs that, that take you to your local state, to take you to your local chapter, and and there's a button right down there that says if you would like to, uh, to make an appointment for a free smoke alarm, click this, and and we will get back to you and. Work again, working with the fire department, we'll circle back um, because we just want to make sure you got what you need to stay safe. So we and, try to make it real easy. And of course, for anyone listening right now, because there are some people who have gone, wow, I want to volunteer for this. How do they uh, talk to you about volunteering, either alone or as a group? Yeah, this is this is my favorite question. If, if you weren't going to end with this question or at least bring it up, I was for sure going to bring it bring it up. Um, so let, and let me let me kind of answer that with 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 one other point too the if, if the red cross were a three-legged stool those three legs would be volunteers partners and, and donors when it comes to home fire response in addition to making sure the family gets out okay uh we we, we do a face-to-face -face visit with every family who's hit with a home fire and and we make sure they've got a safe place to stay that night uh we make sure that they've got a little money in their pocket to kind of get them through the next couple of days um, and, and they become a case that we make sure that gets okay. So that, that's what that money goes for. Uh, but for volunteers, the same exact thing. Go to the website and there's a, there's a tab there that says, I'd like to volunteer now. And, and you can choose what chapter or what area you'd like to volunteer. And, uh, and one of our teammates will give you a call and go from there. Um, and we'll get you signed up. Ed, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you even more importantly for what you do every day. Thank you. Late last year, the Environmental Protection Agency announced that $53 million would go out to communities across the nation to monitor air pollution. One of those recipients is the Cherokee community in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Community members there have been sounding the alarm for a decade. But as the Gulf States newsroom's Danny MacArthur reports, many are skeptical that the new testing will fix their problems. On the weekend before Christmas, Barbara Weckheiser is hosting a holiday party for her neighborhood environmental group, Cherokee Concerned Citizens. The small neighborhood of Cherokee Forest in Pascagoula is surrounded by industry. You can see a shipyard building from Weckheiser's house. Neighbors pile into her home to talk about the thing that ties them all together besides the zip codes. The air pollution, they say, is making them sick. And we've continued to push and shove and try to show what industry is actually doing and how much it's impacting our health. 
For Wekheser, the link is clear and personal. She's watched so many of her neighbors pass from cancer over the years. Residents complain of rashes, migraines, and itchiness. But the Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality says their most recent testing didn't show any serious violations. Chris Wells is the executive director. No, the samples that we collected showed concentrations of those hazardous air pollutants in excess of health thresholds. That was in 2016 and 2017. But not too long ago, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency stepped in and said that there wasn't enough data to be confident in the state's results. And they needed more. In November, the Biden administration put a price tag on that effort. $500,000 will be going toward monitoring the air in the Cherokee neighborhood. Wells says the state is in the process of creating a plan for the new round of testing. We're not going into this to disprove or to prove anything. We are, this is an objective effort to determine what, if anything, is going on down there in terms of air pollution. We're going to allow the data to drive what our next steps are. This time around, the state will gather more samples. They'll collect them weekly for a year. And they'll be looking at specific pollutants in the area surrounded by shipbuilding yards, oil refineries, and chemical plants. The EPA says these new air monitoring projects are focusing on communities that are underserved, historically marginalized, and overburdened by pollution. Alabama was awarded funding to study the air in two Birmingham neighborhoods where industrial facilities are emitting pollutants. And Louisiana has projects across the state in areas where industrial pollution is causing higher cancer rates for black and low-income residents. When Mississippi starts its air testing, the agency says engaging the community is a priority. But Barbara Wickeser and many of her neighbors have doubts. That's because, she says, complaints made to state and federal environmental regulators in the past were brushed aside. We're grateful that we have a $500,000 grant to monitor it in this neighborhood, but we're skeptical about how it will be reported. At Wekheser's Christmas party, there are two goals. One is sharing a survey with the other residents to see who wants to move out of Cherokee Forest. The other is connecting the dots for her neighbors. For some people, it's their first time hearing that nearby pollution might be making them sick. And as people swap stories, Barbara Irvin sees a pattern. When you've got three or four homes in the same area and everybody's having the same problems, something's wrong. Irvin is the other Barbara in the group who's fighting for answers. She says her family didn't know all the facts about the pollution when they arrived 25 years ago. She thinks the air monitoring project will help but only if the community has a voice. We need to be included, not excluded. We need our own representatives there so we can make our own decisions and make our own, you know, our own observations. The group is also trying to get their own answers. Irvin says they're looking for grants and partnering with other organizations to test air quality themselves. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, 
This has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, Lydia Bizzano, director of the Tulane Center for Lifespan Epidemiology Research, and Ed Bush, executive director of the Capital West chapter in the Louisiana region for the American Red Cross. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouses.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.